So hello and welcome to my Dollarama's Top Picks. For new listeners, I'm Coco Green, armchair critic and aspiring academic with my co-host Abla Candeloft, film programmer, journalist and researcher. In Top Picks, we use post-colonial Afro-pessimism, Bordeauxian theories, etc. to discuss race, class, inequality, all the isms really, well not all of them but some of them, in drama, documentary, mystery and horror films. Now in its 10th year, My Die champions independent film and using the medium as a platform for underrepresented and oft-ignored voices. We're going to start this episode, as with all others, with our top picks of the week and then discuss two films. The first is One Man in His Shoes and the second is The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Okay, so I've, uh, I have two top picks for this week and the first one is a horror film called Caveat and it's by filmmaker Damon McCarthy and it um, premiered I think at the Cork Film Festival but I watched it through the the online platform for the Leeds International Film Festival. If you like horror keep an eye out for Damon McCarthy's work. What a strong debut that was. So I'll be brief with the synopsis because I don't want to reveal too much because it's definitely worth catching once it's out. A lone drifter suffering from partial memory loss accepts a job to look after a psychologically troubled woman in an abandoned house on an isolated island. There's no exposition. There's no setup. You literally start the film with this um, slightly disheveled looking guy with a beard who sat in his kitchen and there's what looks like a second hand car salesman trying to make a deal with him and asking him to go look after his niece in this abandoned house because something's happened to her parents. So she needs looking after. It's very unclear when it starts why exactly they're doing this deal. What's the relationship between the two people? Why on earth he's asking this of someone who looks so in need of care and looking after himself? But presumably there is money involved. And I think he does say, I will pay you £200 a day to do this. Also, it's not very clear when it takes place. Ben Kaplan looks a bit uh, period. He looks like he's dre- uh, he lo- he's got sideburns, I think, and he looks a bit seventies for some reason. Right? It's very disorientating. I didn't really look at the synopsis or anything really before watching it, and it was incredibly eerie. There was a powerful sense of impending doom that just hovered over the the entire film from the very start to the very end of it. What I think I especially appreciated was the director's very, very strong attention to detail. The cinematography is fantastic. The set pieces are wonderful. The way he's built, um, he's dressed that house. So I can't recommend this enough. It's really worth looking out for when it comes out, hopefully on the big screen or um, via VOD. The performances are also really strong. So apart from, aside from Ben Kaplan, you've got Jonathan French, who is the lead character. And he is excellent as the bewildered Isaac, whose fear, confusion and determination are palpably bubbling under the surface the whole time. So he never overacts. It's never too much. Um, And you kind of go on this journey with him into this very macabre world that he's inhabiting. The second one in a completely different tone is Western Arabs by Omar Shargawi. Now, I caught this through the online platform for the Palestine Film Festival, the London Palestine Film Festival. Their online platform happens to be basically the Barbican's online platform because it's through them they're showing the films. And I caught two films and I'll mention the second one in our next episode. The first one is Western Arabs. 
And it's a very, very interesting, very chaotic, but fascinating documentary that was filmed over the course of 12 years by Omar Shargawi. And it's incredibly interesting in what it says about, I thought, intergenerational trauma and the impact of displacement. So here's a little bit about um, his story. So Omar's father, Munir, was amongst the Palestinians that were forced to flee their homes in 1948. Uh, if I remember correctly, he's from Jaffa um, or Haifa, sorry, Haifa. Uh, and when he was a young child, they fled to Jordan and then eventually immigrated to Denmark. And it was there that Muni met his Danish wife, with whom he had three sons, Omar being one of them. The reason he's filmed bits and pieces of interactions between him and his father and him and his brothers was to try and foster a closer relationship with his father, because there's a sense that they've sort of been living parallel lives and they've never engaged in that sense and he wants to shed light on both his father's past and his own personal periods of depression so he's quite honest as well Omar he does say that he's gone through uh, very dark times he's, he's suffered from depression and anxiety so in a in a kind of cathartic way to address all this he's filmed family interactions over over a decade and it's very unvarnished, so he f he films footage of domestic arguments and fights, which leave you very uncomfortable as a viewer, but also hugs and jokes. And in between though, that footage, um, you see clips from what's happening amongst his fellow Palestinians back in, uh, in Israel, in the Palestinian territories. So you see clips of um, the Israeli bombings of Gaza. And very confusingly, which made Chris laugh, is footage from Omar's other films. It's backstage clips that sort of jar, the tone really mm -hmm. jars with the rest of it because they're quite amusing. They're a bit like um, parody Bruce Lee films. Do you see what I mean? It's really choreographed fights and stuff. It is very chaotic. The, the rhythm's all over the place, but it really actually works. And I found that to be its ultimate strength. There's a sense of unfinished business where Munir, his dad, carries the burden of his past and the bitterness he feels at the injustice that was done to him and his people through those decades. And he passes it through, through to his son as Omar has a lot of, um, there's a lot of anger there that's unaddressed and feels kind of aimless as a result. Whereas his father's anger is very much directed at a very specific political situation. Actually, I would consider it quite a poetic piece of work. And I thought it was very, very strong. And these are my picks of the week. Very quick. So our partners at Filmfest Reports have sent a couple of festivals to flag. I'm just going to flag one this time, which is the Documenta Madrid. It was postponed from May. So that's when it was meant to take place. And Documenta Madrid will host a hybrid 17th edition that will combine face-to-face -face and online screenings. One of the festival venues in Madrid will host a retrospective of Robert Frank's work, one of the most famous photographers of the 20th century. And that's it for me. Okay, so I just have two top picks. The first is The Lovers and the Despot. So it's a 2016 documentary about the 1978 abduction of South Korean actress Choi Yun-hee and filmmaker Shin Sang-ok. I'm really bad at the pronunciation and I wasn't going to go back and rewatch it where they said the names. I thought, eh, because after this, I'll refer to them by their first names. I know it's bad, but this is where we are. 
and they were kidnapped by the dictator of North Korea. Although should we say dictator? That's a pretty loaded term. I'll say the leader of North Korea, Kim Jong-il. So after Shin's incarceration for three years and Choi's more genteel isolated confinement, they were forced to make artistic films in order to allow North Korea to gain recognition for their film industry. So when they were kidnapped and brought to North Korea, they were already divorced. So they go through their marriage. And I really like when Shin, not Shin, oh gosh, when Choi talks about her marriage and divorce because now Shin has passed away. She says um, she didn't really believe when it was rumored that he was taking up with this actress because it was an affair that led to it. And she said she thought, no, I mean, who does this woman think she is? She can't compete with me, so it can't be true. And nobody knows how much she loves me. And it just sounded so real the way she just put it out there like that. It's that. It just sounded like that is something a wife would be thinking. Like, he would never cheat on me. Stop. You know, you don't know him. You don't know how he much he loves me. I mean, just, I could hear someone saying that. And it was true, though, that he had two kids with the other woman. So she said it was after the first baby that was what allowed her to accept it. And it was a bit crushing. And also something comforting about her just telling it like it was. So when they were, so he, she was kidnapped first, then he went to look for her Mm. and he was kidnapped through that process of trying to find her. So they were divorced when they were kidnapped and in North Korea together, but they reconciled under these conditions and they were also allowed to make international trips to promote the film and the films that they were making and to fundraise. So interestingly, even though he was kidnapped, the, leader of North Korea did allow him the artistic freedom to make films. And it's important because Shin, he was a prolific director, hundreds of films under his belt. But by the 1970s, his production business was failing. And according to him, he wasn't allowed to make the films that he wanted to because of the oppressive government. So North Korea, even though he wasn't free to come and go, he was allowed total creative freedom over his films. Sorry, when you say kidnapped, what um, do you mean? Where was he kidnapped? Was he just unable to leave the country is that what you mean no he was kidnapped so what happened was when Choi was offered a job so or discussions for a job at any rate she went to Hong Kong to have go into talks negotiations about this new role which she was excited about because she was her heyday was the 50s and 60s so you know she's getting a little older but she's uh still in the industry and that is how they kidnapped her to lure her there from South Korea. So when he went to go look for her, they kidnapped him the same way. So by that, I mean, North Korean agents went with the mission of kidnapping them. So they were drugged and taken to North Korea. But it was interesting because I wasn't familiar with, uh, well, neither Shin nor Choi. It was also just so fascinating. You think, wow, you would never think of someone doing that. I don't know if you remember that film from, it might have been in the 90s or the early 2000s, The Beautician and the Beast. <laughs> Hilarious. <laughs> have you seen that? Uh, have you seen it? No, no. Never heard of it. It's hilarious. It, are you familiar with Fran Dresser? She was in that sitcom, The Nanny. No. And Oh, okay. I well, feel like no. that's one of the ones that just wasn't on in the UK. Oh, man. Well, it was, it was, I never watched the show. It was certainly one of those. Did you ever watch Who's the Boss? Now I'm referencing. Heard of it. I'm sure you're familiar though with the setup where you have the 
different class and cultural backgrounds of the two protagonists. And so you spend years saying, will they or won't they? Yeah. And in The Nanny, she played the nanny, right? But she was a beautician by trade and her engagement fell apart and she took a job as the nanny. And the joke was, of course, she had no experience because she's Mm -hmm. a hairdresser. And the... It was a widower and his three children, so Mr. Sheffield, and he was a producer on Broadway and from, he was from money as well. So he was a British guy from money and he had a uh, butler who, of course, also thinks he's better than other people and he doesn't like his Mr. Sheffield's business colleague who is totally in love with him, but he ignores her. Right? <laughs> he's not really interested. And of course, she hates how much Fran has been able to be incorporated in the family and she really doesn't deserve to be there. So it's all about the banter and the misadventures they have and how she's, everything always works out, even though she's not that responsible <laughs> with the children. So she played a similar character in the film Beautician the Beast. And she thought she was going to teach at a beauty college, but it was to be a governess for this Royal family, but she didn't realize he was a dictator. Right. And so it's, it's pretty hilarious because, she's goes to visit one of the factories and she's talking to one of the workers and she said, wow, you have to do all that. You should talk to your union rep. And he said, what's a union? And yeah. <laughs> because she's from Queens. Of course, she's like trying to start organizing the workers and telling them about their rights. It was so funny. Anyway, the point being, it sounds surreal. You could not imagine a dictator kidnapping the one of some of the more prominent people in the film industry to make films. The second one was Three Identical Strangers. That is a 2018 documentary. In 1980, New York, we have Edward Galland, David Kellerman, and Robert Shaffron, who discovered they were identical triplets adopted as infants by separate families. And the documentary charts their journey from discovery of being a triplet to becoming roommates and best friends, and finally to husbands, fathers, and business partners. We also learned about the ambiguity of the circumstances of their adoption and research which collected data on them, as well as other multiple births that were separated at birth mm-hmm. to analyze their personalities and development. So we're still left unsure after we watched the documentary about the machinations of psychiatrists Neubauer and Bernard in orchestrating their adoptions as well as others. And there is no deep dive into the ethics of these kind of experiments or into separating twins or triplets at birth. I still no, think I in- watched it and I was so shocked by that. Oh, were you? Wait, wait yeah. which part was shocking? Which part? By the fact that that wasn't explored enough. I, I, I yeah, thought it was a very right? good documentary, but it was very much about the very moving reunion and the relationships within th- the, the three. And then, what ha- you know, the trajectory that their lives mm-hmm. take after they meet again, well, after they meet up and as adults. But the ethics of having separated them at birth was sort of touched on as like the context in which this happens, but it wasn't really debated. No, exactly. It wasn't. So you can understand more because I still... So we all know outside of experiments, right? So for example, with foster children, that's a common practice to separate them because they're like, oh, no one's going to take you all. So let's just put you. However, I think there's got to be a timeline on that because then the children, if they're not adopted, they're just in foster Mm -hmm. care from one home to another. And that's not good. So I'm not, I'm still, I don't think I have a hard and fast opinion about how long that should be. I just know that children need stability. Yeah. And they need a home. Of course, more should be done absolutely to help biological parents to care for their children. 
yeah, if the environment isn't safe and you're not moving towards that. Uh, but of course, that wasn't the case here. And I think that isn't always the case, right? Because it is possible to separate children and you're not obligated to help them to have a relationship. So the question is, what are the ethics of that? Because I know people do have strong opinions about that, but they didn't present any of that to say how it affects development. The only thing they did say is that they all had psychological problems, but I don't think they were in any way of implying that that had something to do with them being separated because mm-hmm. they were separated so young, so they didn't know the difference. So I don't yeah. think they were saying it was some sort of uh, melancholia <laughs> that, yeah. that caused the mental health problems. But Any conclusive words on... Uh... No, that's just it. I mean, I think we said it. They should have delved into the ethics of it. Uh, versus leaving us with just, oh, it's sad that they didn't grow up together. Cool. Um, We can move on to our main focuses of the week. The first (laughs) film is One Man and His Shoes by Yemi Bamiro. It's a film about many things, but at the heart of it is the relationship between um, Michael Jordan and the company Nike and the uh, the furore around the the release of the Air Jordan trainers. And then uh, by extension, it's also a relationship um, or rather I've someone described it as a celebratory. It's it's a celebratory account, really, of the relationship between Michael Jordan and the rest of uh, mainstream black culture of the time, especially through uh, film and TV through Spike Lee's involvement in the adverts for um, Ed Jordan trainers. It was a documentary that came out in October, which is now available on iPlayer. The director is actually, uh, has directed a lot of uh, portrait type films and as a photographer as well. And I thought that's where it was at its strongest. I thought it was a very interesting portrait of a man and a brand and the relationship between him and the brand and so on. Uh, so cinematography, Graphically, it's well put together and it's engaging and it's quite a fun watch. I had a few issues with some of the problems that weren't fully addressed. So the I film... do too. Let's see if they're the same. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the film, the film does address the fact that kids start killing each other for the Air Jordans because they are expensive. They're one hundred and forty dollars. It does condemn Nike's marketing campaign and it does really place the guilt on them for for that side of things but it didn't and I don't know if that's its role at that point but I feel like it should be touched on they didn't really address the fact that it's part of a bigger problem to be honest it's not solely Nike's responsibility it's more the fact that well it's consumer capitalism so these products whether they're Nike um, Air Jordans or whatever are marketed at children of families that are generally poor and can't afford these consumer goods and people get into debt. So I had an issue with the fact that that wasn't fully fleshed out. Nike was presented. Now, I don't know if you felt that, but it was very like the story of Nike felt a bit rags to riches. You had the sense that it was a modest sort of (laughs) um, family owned brand whose success kind of took everyone by surprise. Nike's a huge brand, it's a huge corporation, and it's been responsible for a lot of business malpractice and really poor working practices. Now, the documentary doesn't address at all the manufacturing of the shoes, which I had an issue with, so that's something. But also the fact that they, they're they very cynical in monetizing the street culture and 
appropriating what is initially a counterculture and then commodifying it and making products that they that they sell on to these uh, to that basically impoverished customer base. Um, so these are the the two main issues I had with it. Yeah, I think I agree. I agree with that part of it, right? Because that is the real issue. I mean, I hadn't thought about it in terms of how they presented Nike as a rags riches story, but even they say like, oh, they were number three and then they moved to number one. It's like, like number three, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yes, they were it. number three along with my shoe shop that I ran out of my garage. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> so yeah, it, it, the, it wasn't a David and Goliath situation the way they were saying, but I do think that it did do well to tell to contextualize the phenomenon of Air Jordan sneakers. So it showed that, you know, their social, cultural and racial significance and that it was their marketing strategies that were groundbreaking. So all of the innovation Mm -hmm. they had in that sense, I think is important to understand because it certainly wasn't as if, oh, Michael Jordan came along and made this brand what it was. And I think that's commonly how people think of it. So it was nice to show, no, lots of money was pumped in in a way that it hadn't been pumped in before. And of course, it was timing as well. So they were also looking for someone who could be an all-American type that was like Michael Jordan. So this, for me, this came up to say, you know, when in the film, I believe it was the sentiment, even though it was said by a talking head, that sports is a microcosm of society. Mm-hmm. And... It is not. I disagree with that. And for a full explanation, for anyone interested, the sociology of sport does an analysis around sport as an institution. So it can't escape social conflicts or institutionalizing social divisions more or less than, yeah, it can't escape. No institution can. So I'd argue, though, that sports crafts a particular kind of propaganda. And I think the fact that it focuses on marketing brings, makes that point very clear. So I, hope this isn't misunderstood. I did like the film. I enjoyed it. But that's still what's important. I mean, just as a side note, I've never liked sports. I played basketball (laughs) in sixth grade because I'm tall. And I was harassed for years after about why I don't play sports by friends, (laughs) by friends, strangers and family. And I've also not really been a part of the whole whole sneaker buying phenomenon so even as a teenager when it was time for me to buy sneakers I would have to get my friends and their boyfriends to tell me what to get because I had no idea and I still don't so for example a few weeks ago my friend commented on my shoes I had just these Kate Spade sneakers and he looked at him and he said oh so you just took the laces out and he'd (laughs) never heard of that brand (laughs) it's like Kate Spade Uh, what is that now I've heard the name See, yeah, I don't yeah. really know what it is. I'm going to have exactly. to Google and it. He hadn't even heard the name. So with that said, as you can imagine, a lot of what was covered in this film was new to me, especially the specifics of the marketing, which I was really interested in. And I do think, though, that, yeah, I just can't say that enough, that the the marketing, like you're saying, the appropriation of black a particular kind of black culture, mm-hmm. right? Not black culture in general, mm-hmm. but in, that's come now to represent black culture was what was part of their secret sauce. And that's not new, right? So you always have aspects of black imagery and certain aspects of black culture used to sell products, to be cool, to be cutting edge, to be whatever, right? Yeah. So I also think that it was how Jordan worked as a sport, a spokesperson as part of that point, because he was pro-black culture, you have a dark, tall black man who can be symbolic of 
a particular kind of masculinity, prowess, and power, but not be pro-Black power. And by that, I mean Black people having actual power, a share of it in politics and wealth and decision-making institutions. He wasn't pro that, but he can represent that in a Black body. And I don't all, and it was also framed, you know, back to your point about it being this sort of rags to riches story. The documentary was also trying to sell it as it being revolutionary because subsequently athletes were able to have these lucrative branding deals. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's what made it revolutionary. So just because you have a few black millionaires, a few black athletes, specifically get rich, that's nothing. I think it was revolutionary because of what it sold to black people. So it sold the dream and belief. And Mm -hmm. to be fair, I think it sold it to white people too, that black people are essentially white people, but darker. (laughs) So we can excel in particular fields that we're suited for, right? Hence why it has to be an athlete, not... (laughs) Not a biologist, yeah. not a chemist, not a tech star, right? You have to do things that you're suited for. And that real power lies in sales and, compu- and consumerism and athleticism, not in ownership. And that was a real powerful message that I think we're still living with now. And mm-hmm. you see the rise of this myth of black consumer power, which looks to status symbols, power through possession, And even with having spokespeople, they broke it down well in the movie to say how Michael Jordan got a profit share and how that no longer happens anymore. But we even believe, and by we, I mean the common misconceptions that people have, that spokespeople share in a profit that's just as good as ownership. And it is not. And it's not the same thing. And people get very confused. Mm -hmm. And... Really, these are different kinds of exploitative relationships. And at the end of the day, you still don't own anything. You're still on payroll. And I think this is where the film let us down because it didn't explore these issues. It went down the road of corporate social responsibility. And that, oh, Nike, Air Jordan, Michael Jordan can do more to speak out against the violence. So on the one hand, I'm selfishly pleased that they're beating this drum because I'll likely end up working in the corporate social responsibility again. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for, for, for promoting this. However, it's not a root cause. So we've never watched a documentary about the rise of the diamond and women getting mugged for their engagement rings. And that would be the analogy. Yeah. And in that way, you can see that it's absurd because it's nothing to do with who's making the money, why they're making the money, and that generally people are wearing them in fine. So I'm sure that jewelry theft does happen, but it would not, <laughs> it wouldn't be the focus of a film because that's not the real issue. So I wasn't really sure why they went down that road of the people who have been murdered. And, you know, I don't want to be flipping about that because I can't imagine the pain of losing someone to something so trivial. uh, Yeah. To something like that. Yet it's still not the norm. Like you're saying, the norm is the issue, how we're all going into debt. Yeah. Because of consumerism in general. So it's not just limited to Nike and, and, the question then is what happens for people who don't even have access to debt? Because you still have to be somewhat privileged to be able to go into that debt. And then there's people who cannot go into debt. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was probably 10 
And I first learned about layaway. I had never heard of that in my life. I thought layaway. <laughs> what is that? Huh? Of what now? So layaway, they have this at stores. And mind you, there'll be certain stores. So they, It wasn't available at any mall I shopped at growing up. But if you went down 15 miles to another city, the way it worked is you have items that you want to buy, but you don't have the money. And so they hold them for you and you make payments on it. And then you get it. So it's layaway. So the store will hold on to the items and then you come in and you make payments on it until you can take it. I've never heard of that system. There's a reason you've never heard of that system because that's a sort of, and of course, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things like check cashing, right? There's different systems set up for poor people, but they don't have layaway at Foot Locker. (laughs) And then, so seriously though, so then it's like, okay, so then what happens when you shut people out of that credit system Mm -hmm in a system where everyone else is relying on credit. So when you look at it that way, you see that it's a different kind of problem versus some, uh, you know, and I don't even know if they, if they, they didn't really hint at it being gang culture or something, but it's like, but what are you saying then about these black youth? Cause it was young people, right? Yeah. It looked like who were getting killed and also killing. What are you saying about them when you don't look at the issue in that way? You make it about poor black people when it's not about poor, poor black people. They're just mm-hmm. the ones who are suffering the consequences from that, if you get what I mean. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was disappointing that they didn't do that and instead made it about CSR. But again, thanks, because I will need that job next year. <laughs> my, contract, <laughs> my contract is ending. <laughs> so I can point to something like that and say, this is the program I had put in place. They also could have went down the road to say, okay, what kind of deals do athletes get now or, you know, I mean, I don't know, but they also maybe could have ended it without using black death to to send a message that didn't really work, in my opinion. But I well, still did like thing. it, so I would encourage people to see the film. It felt it felt more like more shoehorned in, like it was an issue that they felt they couldn't just not mention because it would be brought up. So they should address the fact that a number of people, plus there was this demonstration uh, taking place. So people are quite vocal about the fact that um, a small number of people have actually been killed for those shoes. So it would have felt odd to leave that out. But the way it was touched on was very much like um, the brand just needs to be more responsible and address those concerns. Whereas I would argue that it's not really about that at all. Um, It's a much... There is much more at stake and it's not. And you know what they could have talked about too was a black aspiration that has come out of that because people still use Michael Jordan, one athlete out of hundreds as a model for what you can do and unfortunately have that as an actual career goal. No, that's, that's not really an option. Not only because they're not doing deals like that, but very few people make it to professional sports oh yeah but that's like saying being a youtuber is a career goal do you know what i mean like a, a i think you'd have a better chance though to be honest <laughs> than to be, than to be a professional that. athlete statistically i think maybe you no, probably have big bucks chance. out of that right well but that's just it yeah you get it through the in fact that's something we need to research <laughs> what can we start promoting yeah you'd Skincare. have to partner with a big company especially now after covid like the question would be how many of these smaller brands that are using influencers how many of them will be around but i guess they sell their stuff online so maybe they're doing okay but well why don't we plug right now (laughs) your face wash 
And maybe they will kindly send you and maybe me three or four bottles. Oh, but that's my secret. I don't know if I told you about that because I joke about that. And you only know about my face wash because you've seen it. Yeah. But no, I lie about what products I use because I don't want people to have nice skin. And that isn't a joke. Oh, my God. (laughs) So I have a lie about what hair products I use. I have a lie about what skincare products I use. Um, and there, it tends to be believable because I tell the lie enough so that I well, can... Well, why don't you just I'm, say it's it's all down to the um, Ethiopian cotton uh, cloth? <laughs> because that business is actually happening, so you'll have to edit that out of this episode. Um, but yeah, but but you're right, because I would not... I would be okay plugging the fake products and saying that I use them <laughs> and not plugging the real ones. So what you're saying could actually work. Uh, because well, my story to everyone is that I use Mazzani's line, which I don't, but that oh, would be ouch. my story and I would promote that. <laughs> well, and you know what? It is also a good product. So I would feel okay about promoting it and saying I use it because I think they all the products work well together. They're reasonably priced, but I do not use them. <laughs> I don't even know what to call that. That's not advertising. <laughs> Because I feel like, you know what, I have spent so much time and money to find a product that works. And you think you're just going to rock up and find out what I use and not spend any money and not spend any time. No, I don't feel okay about that. I think I feel better watching you struggle and figure out what works. Go through what I went through. Why should it be so easy? I have no answer to that. <laughs> exactly. That's why it makes sense. Just like with my skincare, I can't tell you how much money I've spent over the years. I, I honestly couldn't. I think I would be ashamed and I'd probably get sick. I mean, would it crush I you if it? I told you that? I honestly believe that you would have, even if you'd spent five pounds, you'd still have good skin. That's that only because of the money. products. Although, you know what, my uh, my friend did tell me that she said for years that she just used water on her face. I was pretty shocked because she's always had nice skin. I was like, how's that possible? But you know what? I didn't question it. I said, hey, either she's <laughs> me and she's she schemes for sure. That's why we're friends. She's very schemy, but she wouldn't scheme about that because she doesn't really care about that. So well, I'm inclined okay. to believe her. I spend money on skincare because I'm an absolute sucker for packaging. I like <sighs> buying skincare. I don't necessarily nice. believe it improves my skin, though. Uh, enough talk about skincare. We're <laughs> done with our first film. Our second film is Last Man in San Francisco. Last Black Man. <sighs> Why do I always get that wrong? <laughs> Race doesn't matter. <laughs> That's not Ah, moving swiftly on to last the black man in san francisco which is a film centered around a young black man jimmy fails who with the help of his writer slightly eccentric friend tries to reclaim his childhood home that's uh, located in a gentrified part of san francisco and it's a home he claims had been built by his grandfather in the 1940s uh, it tra- interestingly, the uh, character Jimmy Fails is played by actor Jimmy Fails, and the story is actually partially inspired by his own childhood. And the director Joe Talbot is a friend of Jimmy's, and they um, they put together their heads together and came up with the idea for the film. So that's the premise. 
it meanders a lot, but it in a good way. It's incredibly stylized, and it takes you on a journey through the city and through the main character's psyche with various repetitions, some elliptical scenes, and some very quite clever choice of music. One element I liked was that it was punctuated by a um, songs sung by a busker who's got a beautiful voice, a black busker and uh, in on one of the streets. I thought it had echoes of a chorus in a Greek tragedy. So I I really, really, really enjoyed watching it. I thought it was absolutely beautiful, very unexpected, full of really odd twists and turns. I brought up quite a few a few thoughts and ideas and obviously you know the city very well so I put them to you. So I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, a small city in the San Francisco Bay right. Area. So I've the way the Bay Area works is you have San Francisco that kind of anchors it even though people and it's across the bridge from Oakland. So it's a tale of that kind of city where people have asked the question why did San Francisco develop one way in Oakland another because it is they are just it's a bridge apart. And then Silicon Valley has really changed the area. So my family, my mother's side of the family anyway, came to the Bay Area um, in the 60s for work because that's when you had the great migration of black people from the South. And while most went to the Midwest and the East, there are, um, that was uh, another wave people who came to California. And so that was... What's a way to say it? Of course, they settled in Richmond first and then Oakland. And so it's, we certainly weren't part of that group of San Franciscans, kind of like Maya Angelou. I believe her family Mm -hmm. lived in San Francisco during that time, right? The 40s and the 50s. So we weren't, I don't really know anybody actually who was part of that uh, migration of black people who came earlier because of course in California, you have black people coming even um, even though they weren't supposed to be slaves in California, because I think because of the law they were. So, you know, for a long time, but in terms of substantial numbers, you have a different ways of immigration, sort of World War II. And I'm not too familiar, but what I do know is that there were black neighborhoods in San Francisco and really there's remnants of <laughs> remnants of one, uh, kind of the Hunter's View Bay Point, but that isn't the neighborhood he was in. And I always forget the name of it, unfortunately. I can't think of it now, the neighborhood that he was in. But when I'm he sorry, says, me um, what, I mean, th- just the phrase, the first black man in France, San Francisco. The last. Uh, no, no, in the film, there's a suggestion that the um, his grandfather was the first black man in San Francisco, right? <laughs> that's hilarious. I don't recall that. But oh, if he yeah, did no, that... it is. And that's why then the, the his friend writes the play calling it the last man in San Francisco, the last black man in San Francisco. Okay, well, because technically wouldn't... his grandfather was the first one. Now, um, so well, I don't know the history of the city. Have been so... in the 40s, okay? The 40s, that certainly wasn't the first. No, 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 no exactly. I... That's 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 it. That's why. Um, you mean, why would he say that? What, or why, why would he family... say that? Yeah, yeah. And history what's the history of the black population of the city? Well, I'm not sure why he would say that. I'll, I'll, I'd have to think about why he would say that. Fillmore, yes, that's the district I'm thinking of. So Fillmore was, that was a historical black neighborhood. And I'm not, gosh, I think, but really the one that's left, right, is Bayview Hunters Point. So those, I would say that 
in terms of when, I mean, I see why he would say that though, right? Because that is when you get the substantial number of black people who move to San Francisco yeah. in the I mean, 40s. bear in mind, it's a very poetic film and the whole story of his grand- grandfather having built the house, that's not really true anyway. So I think it's part of it's the not, kind of it's the not poetic true, license. But I think I get, because that's just, I mean, I think it's the same, you know, similar conversations you have about, you know, I've had, I've had and I've watched other people have about black people in London. It's like, okay, yes, we get it. You were here in the 19th century, but not enough of you, right? No. So there were, <laughs> the, you were here. Yes, you built community and had organizations, but your numbers were very small. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just it with San Francisco. Like they were there, but their numbers were really small. So I suppose what he could have been referring to is in the 40s. That's when you start getting <laughs> enough numbers to count, let's say. <laughs> and then in terms of the impact of gentrification, because let's be clear, the popula- the black population in California has always been small. Yeah. So now it's four or 5% of the state population. And even then black people are just in certain cities, certain mm-hmm. regions. But to go from a higher population, which I'm sure in its heyday, right, when you have people in the 60s and 70s was closer to 15%. And now it's back down to the state average of about five, maybe less. Yeah. You have that shift of how and why did people leave? Because I think what's interesting about, and and this conversation happens in other cities too, right? Where they talk about why is it that in cities where you have high housing values, like New York, for example, why didn't black people just hold on to their property and then they would have money too? But there's a couple things to that, right? That one, the housing values only appreciate when black people don't occupy them, right? So if you have a black neighborhood, the housing, so let's say the Fillmore had stayed black, you would never have those houses be a million dollars. It just wouldn't happen because it is in a black area, right? So you have to get rid of the black people in order for the population, Um, the property to have value but then the other part of that is to maintain a property you have to have stability in terms of employment you have to have the mortgage payments you have to pay taxes you have to pay insurance and black people are known for not having stability which is why you see black populations go from place to place when the work disappears the black people disappear because they're not able to enter other industries so easily so that's the problem is once you have the layoffs, once the industry changes, once people lose their jobs, that's when the houses, if, you know, if you're able to maintain a house at the bare mm-hmm. minimum, you're still likely sell it and try to move somewhere cheaper. And I think that's what's, what's happened in the cities. Like you still have to have, and we see Jimmy's parents, they don't have the stability to have the employment to maintain a house. So you can see easily how they lost it. And to me, that's what this film spoke to was the fact about why they had that myth of the house and how it kept that sense of belonging for the family. So it wasn't only the pride that they had in having that house, but then what was lost when they no longer had that as a place for family and to belong into a, to a city. And that was really the message of this, the, that the city doesn't want you. Yeah. Right. If you are a black person, especially one who can't afford to live there, the city doesn't want you there. And 
I think even in my own, it spoke to me also in my own immediate family. We moved all the time. So once the rent, you know, the rent you have rent increases every year, but once it got too much, we were always moving. Mm -hmm. So it felt more frequently when I was younger, because as you know, everything's much more dramatic when you're younger. But that was always the reason that was never, I was never protected from that story. Even when I was seven, it's like, ah, this is too expensive. We need to find somewhere else. So even within that, you don't have the stability because you can't even stay in a rental property for years on stretch because they'll just, it's just all made too expensive. And yeah. ultimately, Jimmy is homeless. Like, yeah. that is what homelessness looks like. Well, yeah, he ends up on uh, crashing floor. his friend's dad's yeah. place. Yeah. Yeah, because I was, um, out of the kindness of my best friend's heart, she's so lovely. I was supposed to stay with her for a few months and it turned into a year and she was so nice. She did not even get honest about the burden that was placing on her. And her boyfriend asked me to donate money for some homelessness project. I said, I'm homeless. What are you talking about? <laughs> what? Well, you're living a pretty nice life for someone who's homeless. I just looked at him like, fair no, point, fair point. this well, he was he was looking at your face screams and he was like, this is not someone in need of money. <laughs> but that but nevertheless, homelessness is about have not having affordable housing. But yeah, that's and true. it isn't about rough sleeping. And so even you're priced out of San Francisco is your point. Well, yeah, I mean, and I only got had a brief dream wage. to live in San Francisco. So my plan was once I finished uni was to live in San Francisco. That was absolutely a dream. Although, right, if you were able to have affordable housing, it could bring a substantial affordable housing. So you can't just have one housing project. Mm -hmm. No, it has to be substantial. Kind of like, I mean, I know that's changing now, but it used to be in London, it was a third, a third, a third, right? Of owner-occupied yeah. rental social. And I think without someone who studied sitting planning, mind you, to me, that feels right because you, you can, it seems like ideally you'd be able to force, if it was evenly spread out, be able to force that so that you do have a Tesco as long as some gourmet meat and cheese shop. <laughs> Stop me if <laughs> I'm wrong. Though. In the film, they do touch on the issue of rent and control. At what point there's a big building that's burned down that was subject to rent control. And from what I remember, it was burned down intentionally so that they could build something private on right. top of it, right? Yes. <laughs> is that completely yes. fanciful? Does that kind of thing actually happen? It's not because there's all sorts of tactics that people were using to get rid of people. Now, that's the thing. I don't know how many places were rent controlled, but I do know in places that weren't rent control, they were doing huge rent hikes, you know, so Whoops, from sorry. your contract ends right you've been in a place a year your contract ends and they increase your rent by 800 because mm -hmm. they want to get someone in there who can afford that so if you could not do that because of rent control that certainly sounds that believable that you would do so i mean that's a well-known thing in new york they have stories about that in fact i believe that was in an episode <laughs> of pose where the landlord burned down the building for that reason so I mean that sounds realistic to me and I think there is still as you see anytime there's any mention of affordable units you only want to move four poor people in people will fill the city council meeting like no in fact the town that I grew up in 
And it, on the one hand, it proved my point because as you know, I'm against this sort of multiculturalism and this belief just because you are not a white person, you're progressive and anti-racist. <laughs> Absolutely not. And it was proven because the town that I grew up in, whose demographics have totally changed, they were talking about building a homeless resource center. Yeah. Not a shelter, not housing, a resource center, which I'm sure was one of those projects that did nothing under the guise that they were doing something. Because I can't imagine what you would get there that you couldn't get online, but whatever. I think they may have had showers there too. So, so they were out in the streets saying, you're not going to bring down my property value. Not a white face in the bunch. You're not yeah. going to bring down my house values. And it's like, okay, so I want to do an analysis mm -hmm. here on how race really yeah, functions. That's a very good example. Because they, it was awful. And anytime people feel threatened that they won't get the equity in their home that somehow they feel they're entitled to, which is a made up yeah. system that did not always exist, that it's, it'll get vicious. Do you want to conclude um, by saying a few words about what you thought of the aesthetic qualities of the film? I didn't ask you about that. Of course it was well done. I mean, I liked uh, all the different shots of different places in San Francisco. Of course, nothing looked familiar <laughs> to me because I've only been a few places in San Francisco repeatedly, honestly. And I'm normally driven there, so I don't even know how to get there on my own. I did like, of course, the house was gorgeous. I mean, I like the characters, right? So I thought everyone in the film was fun. I don't think my my cousin, he refused to watch it because he heard really? such bad reviews of it. So I'm not sure what people were expect. Yeah, that they thought it was boring. Although the friend, I went to see it with my friend Jen and she went back and saw it again. So she really enjoyed it. And I liked it too. I liked, um, I liked Jimmy. I liked the grandfather. I liked his friend. <laughs> Sorry, the play. I even like the friends on the corner. But you know what? As another thing too is I I wonder how much that was misread. I don't know if you and I have had mm -hmm. this discussion before. Maybe we have. So stop me if we've already had this discussion. I would say it's misinterpreted. So you know how they're <laughs> they're always yeah. talking trash, right? That's what they do, right? That's their job. And one of the reviewers I read said it was toxic masculinity, and mm -hmm. I would disagree. And I, and I also wonder if people really have a definition for toxic masculinity because you have to be a patriarch to do that. But nevertheless, the point is this. Like, I think the thing about, you know, what they call, and I don't even think anyone uses this term anymore, but the reviewer used it. And I think it's used when middle-aged people write about it. Like, Yeah, he takes the piss out of his friend for... I presume he might be gay. But he they did. The but they did it to. Each, but that's the thing. They did it to each other. They did it to Jimmy and his friend. And I think yeah. the misinterpretation is that it's not bullying in the sense that you're really trying to hurt someone. It's like it's worse to be left out than to be not picked on, which yeah, I think is I, different. No, from I got bullying. the sense, and I also think like you are missing the bigger picture if you focus on that aspect, and you're willfully dismissing the the reality of those dynamics that exist on the ground yeah i don't think that they are truly antagonistic towards them right mm. in a way that's hateful it would be worse to ignore them totally than to make fun of them i really didn't know what to expect and it was also you wonder you know, backing up a bit about the house and how it was the family story, how much of that was holding him to the city when clearly it just was not working out for him. It's like, you've obviously been pushed out a long time ago, but it was that house that was holding him there. Well, that was that for The Last Black Man in San Francisco.
All right, so we'll uh, finish off for this episode. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at MyDialorama and you can write to us via our website with any questions and comments you might have. Until next time. <laughs>